We are wrapping up our three-part series on Matthew 18, how God disciplines or trains His church. And if you know anything about child training or even your own personal training, nothing gets accomplished until pride gets out of the way. You can't teach anyone without a teachable heart. It just bounces right off that heart of stone. And so if God is going to teach us, discipline us, make us into a people like His Son, then He needs to deal with our pride first. And really, Matthew 18 has less to do with removing somebody from the church and everything to do with humbling His people, His church. Remember, the whole passage begins with the question from the disciples, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's a prideful question. It's assuming the answer is me, I just want to hear Jesus tell me. A humble question would have been, how does one become great in the kingdom? Not who then is great. Remember, we're talking about a culture where pride is everything, honor is everything, shame, public humiliation is the worst thing imaginable. And so Jesus is teaching His disciples, and by extension teaching us as His disciples, how to be great in the kingdom. And the short answer is to consider yourself nothing, to consider yourself the least to be the last, to humble yourself like a child. He, in fact, grabs a child and says, you need to be like this child. A child who brings nothing to the table, nothing on the resume, no accomplishments. In fact, if anything, children uh, owe a huge debt. Think of everything it took to raise your children. Latest estimates now are that it costs somewhere between 500000 and 800000 to raise one child in America. That's, I guess, if you send them to Harvard. But I'm starting to understand those numbers <laughs> as my children get, get older. But it's more than just the, the financial. It is the patience it takes. It's the rebellion, the disobedience, the constant training. And so, in God's eyes, that is who we are. When we compare ourselves horizontally, and that's what we tend to do, we walk around this earth comparing ourselves to one another, and if we do that, we could fancy ourselves the greatest in the kingdom. But as we look upward and view our God through His revelation of who He is, we pale in comparison. There is no comparison He is holy, we are not. Any holiness we have is imputed to us by Christ's righteousness. God can call us saints, holy ones, only because our faith in Christ gives us Christ's righteousness. We have no righteousness of our own. Our gifts, our talents, our power, our self-control, whatever it is that we point to as proof that I'm greatest in the kingdom is nothing compared to God And after all, if not by God's grace, you wouldn't have any of those gifts and talents at all now, would you? And so, 
Instead of thinking of Matthew 18 as a three-step plan for kicking someone out of the church, we're trying to cultivate an understanding that it's at least a ten-step plan for cultivating humility in the church. And so step one being practice radical humility. This is not natural to us. Humility does not come natural to the natural man. It is something that has to happen by the power and grace of God when He regenerates our heart. In fact, coming to God in salvation requires humility. I was wrong. I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. Have mercy on me, God. This is an act of humility. A prideful heart cannot come to God in salvation. There's no need to come to God in salvation. But even after we're justified in our sanctification, as we're growing in Christ, we cannot grow in Christ with pride in the way. Pride will tell us, I don't need to grow. I'm doing well. It's all these other people that need to change. Certainly, when we have to go to someone to talk to them about their sin, if pride is in the way, we can't talk to them rightly. Where sin abounds, we will either do one of two things when it comes time to talk to somebody about their sin. We will either come to them as some kind of pharisaical, legalist, hypocrite. We will come and our pride will say, you need to repent. Especially if the sin is against you direct. You hurt me. You've made my life uncomfortable. I'm going to make you pay. Or our pride will do this. Oh, I can't go talk to anyone. Oh, I can't do that. They'll think that I'm mean. They'll think I'm judgmental. I'd rather just cover it. And there's times to cover sin, certainly, with grace. But I think we're honest with ourselves. A lot of the time when we're afraid in our pride to go talk to someone about sin, what we're really saying is, I'll go over here and cover it, but not really. I'll sit in the corner and seethe, be, be upset, be angry. And when they say, hey, is anything wrong? Oh, no, no, it's fine. Everything's fine. When it's not fine. And if we're the one who's receiving the correction, a heart of pride will not receive the correction. It will do one of two things. It will get angry. It'll justify your sin. How dare you? What about your sin? There won't be a spirit of humility that will allow you to receive it. Or the other side of that coin is you'll fall into self-pity, tears. I can't believe you're telling me this after all I've done for you. Well, sin is still sin no matter what you've done for people. It doesn't excuse it. And so because pride is so devastating in our relationship with God and in our relationships with one another, the Lord wants us to deal seriously with this. Because it's for our own good. It's for our own good. Step two is practical, practice radical personal holiness. And in, in this context, it's the sin of pride. Practice radical personal holiness when it comes to your sin of pride. I said last week to find out what makes you prideful. If you don't know, ask. Ask your kids, they'll tell you. Ask your spouse. 
Ask your friends. They know. They'll help you get the log out of your eyes so that you can then clearly see the speck of pride in your brother's eye. I gave you an example last week, and it kind of backfired. I've heard reports that nobody spoke at Bible study all week. They didn't want to be that guy who answers all the questions at Bible study. Please have a good Bible study discussion this week. That was just one example. Pastors fear giving examples for application because people will grab hold of that and the heart of the legalist, and we all have a heart of the legalist in us, in some measure, will say, okay, as long as I didn't sin in that way this week, I'm good. Ignoring all the other areas where you're prideful. But I think sometimes examples for application are helpful, so I'll keep giving them. But don't stop at the example. Step three, practice radical love. By the way, you can't practice love when you're busy being prideful because pride is self-love. There's no room for love for God and love for others when you're practicing pride. Notice we use the word practice, 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 practice. The old joke, how do you get to the Met? Taxi driver said, practice, lots of practice. This isn't a check the box. Okay, I'm humble now. Okay, personal holiness, got it. Love, got it. Okay, what's next, God? These are things that have to be cultivated. We use terms like cultivate, practice. You can't just make a tree grow. All right, grow. It's not the way it works. God can do that, right? (laughs) Created everything in six days. Grow. Done. We have to plant the seed and water and nurture and weed the garden. It takes time. So, already steps one through three aren't ones that you can just check the box. And we've done this on purpose. We're creating a culture here. You can't go to your brother to talk to him about sin if you did steps one through three like this. We already got it. Personalized, got it. Love, got it. All right, let's go. Got my flamethrower. Let's go. It doesn't work that way. By the time you get to your brother to talk to him or her about sin, your heart's already melted and you're humble and you're, I love this person. I'm doing this for them. I'm doing this for God. Not, I'm doing this for my own justification, my own vindication, my own revenge, whatever your agenda is. The agenda has to be, I care about my Lord. And he says, I need to do this. I care about my brother. I hate seeing him or her wallowing in sin. Step four, go to your brother in private for a conversation. A conversation, not a confrontation. As soon as you think confrontation in your mind, you're going to either get very afraid or very much in overdrive. And they're going to see that when you approach them. Hey, I want to talk to you. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Point over here. Okay. I want to talk to you. Hey, let's, let's have coffee. Let's talk. 
That's a lot different than I want to talk to you. I need to talk to you. Whether the brother is somebody who's your peer, somebody older, or your child at home, approach them with humility, tenderness, gentleness, love, with the fruits of the Spirit on display. Don't forget at this point, they may not even be in sin. It may just be a misunderstanding. How terrible would that be to accuse someone of sin and find out it was just a misunderstanding? If it turns out it's a misunderstanding, you're done. You're done. You don't have to go on to the next step. If it wasn't a misunderstanding, and Jesus says, if your brother listens, the goal is listening. The goal is a humble heart that's willing to listen. The goal is not an immediate confession on paper, signed, you are right, I'm wrong, what can I do to make it up to you? If you're going with that goal in mind, you're going to go with the wrong heart. That is a heart that is focused on on me being right and me being paid back what is owed. If your brother listens, you've won your brother. You don't move on to the next step. Now, maybe they haven't fully confessed to the sin and maybe they're not all the way where they need to be, but as long as they're listening, step four is fine. You may not even get to the end of the conversation and say, hey, let's talk about this a little tomorrow. You've got to give them time for that, that, that initial information to sink in and give the Holy Spirit time to let it marinate and don't try to get them all the way from you know, prodigal son to wallowing in the pigsty to coming to his senses to racing home all in five minutes. It's not the way people operate. It's not the way you come around when you're locked up in pride and in sin. If your brother doesn't listen, you may need to bring one or two others, as it may be arbitrators or facilitators. Maybe we're going to need a little bit of help here. Maybe it's, hey, I see this pattern in your life, and they say, are you sure? Well, would you mind if I brought a couple more who see the same thing? Oh, there's others? <laughs> If he still won't listen, still isn't listening, what, what causes a heart to not listen? Go ahead and say it. What causes a heart to not listen? Pride. It's all about pride. Jesus is trying to root out pride. Once they listen, you know the pride's getting dislodged. Good. That was the whole goal. Is This is how to dislodge pride in the heart. Not eradicate it. Dislodge it. Start replacing it with humility. If the brother still won't listen, you might have to take it to the whole church. You go to the elders. They bring in the brother or sister. Hey, this is really serious. You've really hardened your heart. You won't listen to your brother. You haven't listened to two or three. We love you so much, we can't let you continue to harden your heart this way. It's going to be a very uncomfortable life if the whole church finds this out. But we would do that because the Lord has commanded us to do it for your own good and for the purity of the church because to leave a prideful brother steeped in sin in the church would become a stumbling block for others. Well, if he doesn't have to humble himself, why do I? Or, well, that guy's in adultery. My sin doesn't, you know, my sin doesn't mean anything compared to that guy. 
if that guy can get away with that, then, you know, my, my sin is insignificant. And so out of love for God and love for the brother and love for the whole church, you may have to take it to that last step. But even that last step, you're hoping he listens. And you don't have to tell it to the whole church. But if he still won't repent, he will have to leave the assembly because unrepentant pride can't stay in the assembly. It can't stay in the church. And the person needs to leave and suffer the consequences of that kind of pride. Believe me, that prideful heart will cause more problems outside the church that will just bring loneliness, um, all kinds of terrible things will happen to that person if they keep that up outside the church. Because the world won't extend the grace that the church was extending. He thought life was hard inside the church. Wait till he gets outside of it and the world sees that kind of pride. And so you're hoping the whole time and praying and pursuing that they would repent and start to listen. You say, well, that seems a little harsh, but here we have, it's the Lord's command to do this. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, and there was a man who was in sin. He was committing adultery with his father's wife. Must have been a mother, uh, a stepmother. If it was his biological mother, ew, right? You know, even worse. But Paul would have said, with his mother. So he says, with his father's wife. So we're assuming that means it's a stepmother. And Paul says, you need to remove such one from the church. That's assuming it sounds like they went through all the other steps and the guy wouldn't listen, but they weren't willing to remove him from the church. And Paul says, look, I might not be there physically, but I'm there in spirit. He says in verse 3, For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present in the name of our Lord Jesus when you are assembled, and with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What does he mean, deliver one to Satan? Satan is in charge of the world system. Remove them from the church, which right now is a safe haven from the world's system. Remove them from that safe haven. Put them out into the world and let him feel the full weight of his sin and reap the consequences of what his pride has been sowing. So that he will, his flesh will be destroyed. Where is pride? Pride is in in the flesh, in the unredeemed part of the heart. Unrepentant pride needs to be crushed. Now, if he repents, no matter how hideous the crime, no matter how heinous the sin, no matter how much hurt this person has caused, if they repent and they're sorrowful and they're teachable, Paul says you need to let him back in 2 Corinthians 2, 6. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, the, the church, the majority. 
so that, on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Well, let's just leave him out there for a little while because he, he really tore this place up. He really hurt us. I know he's repentant, but let's just let him dangle out there for a little. No, no, no. Paul says, bring him back in. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. When the sinner humbles his heart or her heart and seeks forgiveness and repents from the sinful behavior, and that might need to be made public. It was a public tell it to the church. It might have to be a, I need to tell the church I'm sorry. I take ownership for what I did. This works for the church, but if you think of your own life, your own family, your own household as a miniature church, your own marriage maybe as a little personal church of two, in our personal relationships, we tend not to want to actually forgive those who've hurt us. We feel like it'd be letting them off the hook. They need to pay a little. They ask to be forgiven. You say, well, I forgive you, but I'll let you know when I fully forgive you is really the unspoken. And you leave that person with this horrible weight of their guilt and shame, and they don't know what to do with it. They've asked forgiveness. They've, they try to win you back through being nice and doing things around the house and buying you gifts and and it, it's not enough for them because they haven't truly let go of the pain and fully forgived. So Peter understands this. This brings us to steps 8, 9, and 10 today. And step 8 is the same as step 1. Practice radical humility. You have to practice radical humility to go to someone to talk about their sin. You have to practice radical humility to receive that correction. But you've got to practice radical humility to forgive fully. And if you committed the sin and asked for forgiveness, you have to practice radical humility in waiting for the person to really come to grips with their hurt. It's not fair for you to go in and say, hey, forgive me. I know I messed up and I made your life miserable, but the Bible says you have to forgive me. That doesn't really sound like a humble, teachable heart anyways. But maybe you are humble and you're teachable and you say, I'm so sorry. I, I wish there's some way I could make it up to you. I'm dying over here. I'm in excessive sorrow. I can't sleep at night. My stomach hurts. I'm in pain for the pain I caused you. Please forgive me. It takes that kind of humility to wait and give the other person time to, yes, forgive you with their mouth, but to forgive you with their heart. It might take a little time. So you see where humility is important every step of the way. And anywhere pride comes in, it will sabotage the entire system. So Peter comes to, to Jesus, Matthew eighteen twenty one. We pick up the story here. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now, on the surface, this looks like a very generous, humble heart. 
boy, if somebody sinned against me seven times in a row and kept coming back for forgiveness, that, that's, pretty, that's pretty humble. You know, right? Because we have the saying, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me seven times. <laughs> Sin against me seven times. Commentators agree that what was going on in this context was that the rabbis have taught that the three times would be enough. There's a verse in Amos where God says, I've forgiven Israel three times for a certain sin. And so they said, well, if God will forgive three times, then that's as many as we should forgive. I mean, who are we to exceed the amount of times that God would forgive? But come on. This is why you need a biblical theology of the whole Bible. Really, God will only forgive the same sin three times? If that's the case, I'm in trouble. How about you? So Jesus says to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. See, Peter's heart of legalism had come out. Wow, this is really tough. I don't know. It's hard to forgive people. How about seven times? Then I'm, then I'm done. If I can check the box seven times, then I'm free now to not have to forgive people. I'm free to not have to humble myself. I'm free to not have to love. That's the heart of the legalist. A heart that isn't being legalistic would say, teach me how to forgive, Lord. How do I cultivate a heart that is willing to forgive? I read this story recently I wanted to share with you from John Piper. You know John Piper? Familiar with, with Piper? We love his teaching and, and his preaching. But loves to use his hands. And when he first came to Bethlehem Baptist, where he was pastor-teacher for many, many years, they were hammering out their constitution and bylaws, and they got to the subject of drinking alcohol and whether or not that should be disallowed in the church officially. He said, what do, you, what do you think, Pastor? And he said, well, I don't partake of alcohol for five reasons. One, I don't want to fall into drunkenness, which would be a sin. Two, I don't want to be controlled by anything that isn't the Spirit of God. Three, I want to be a good steward of the money God gives me through God's people and don't want to spend it on alcohol. Four, water is much healthier. And it's free. So my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. I want to take care of my body. And, and five, I don't want to cause a weaker brother to stumble. But you'll notice the list, none of the reasons were because it's a sin. And they said those are good reasons, all the more reason for us to put in our constitution and bylaws that we won't allow drinking. And he says, no, we will not call sin what God doesn't call sin. And then he said this, you have to picture Piper. He closed his eyes. I picture the whole breadth of God's teaching in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and everything he taught and everything Jesus has taught and who Jesus was the most upset with when he came to earth. And I, I close my eyes and I picture hell. And in hell I see 10 million more legalists than drunks. And so we will teach people the more excellent way and not make rules where God hasn't made rules. 
And so Peter's saying, how about seven times? Give me a, give me a number. The legalist always wants a number. My heart, your heart, will say, what are the five things that as long as I don't do these things, I'm good? And they always tend to be the five things you're best at doing. If your heart has any pride in it that says, I, don't, I want a reason to not have to forgive somebody who's humbled themselves and something's wrong. So we can't make a rule about this. So Jesus says, what, seven times 70? Really coming up with a number that just says, you need a heart that's ready to forgive. And then he tells this story, which answers the un spoken question, why do I need to have a heart that's ready to forgive? This is my, my trick for preaching, by the way. I'll just let you know. I'll often start a sermon with a question until I see the whole audience is like, yeah, why is that? And then I go, hey, I'm glad you asked because I have this sermon that answers that question, but that gets you on the hook. You're, you're interested. Well, why do I have to forgive someone that much? Oh, I'm glad you asked, Peter. Let me tell you a little story. Jesus is going to tell us a little story here. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. How much is a talent? It's 15 years' wages. So we're talking about an unpayable debt. See, even the legalists will go, okay, well, let's see, what do I make in a year times 15 times 10,000? Well, if I ever get to, like, Bill Gates-type wealth. Well, that logic doesn't work because if you have Bill Gates' wealth, a talent is more than what it was before. Wherever you are on the social socioeconomic level, this is an unpayable debt. Whether you're making minimum wage or you're making six figures, take that, times it by 15, times it by 10,000. It's an unpayable debt. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord, his master, commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. And all of that still wouldn't pay for the debt, but at least the master would get something. Cut his losses. Commentators uh, were saying that probably his family would be sold individually, not as a family, because you could fetch a higher price for each person as an individual. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, And I will repay you everything. No, you can't. And at least he's begging for mercy. Have patience with me. I have a heart that wants to repay, even though my head isn't working right. I can't repay this debt. See, there's still a little bit of pride there. Have mercy on me, and somehow I'll come up with the money. He needed to throw himself at his master's feet and say, I am sorry I've run up this debt. I could never repay it. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on my family. Punish me. Don't punish my family. You know. 
Let's talk about this unpayable debt because this is kind of the key to humility. I know we all understand that Jesus, we say it, right? He paid for our sins on the cross and it was a debt we could never pay ourselves. And then we move on. And our brother sins against us and we treat them like they just stole a billion dollars from us. So we don't really understand this unpayable debt. People who lived a very very heinous life before conversion, some people say, well, they have a better understanding of this unpayable debt. I was a thief, I was into drugs, I, you know, whatever. But then that would mean that the person who didn't live that life didn't really have an unpayable debt. That, you know, that sweet little girl who went to Sunday school her whole life and accepted Christ when she was three... Does she owe an unpayable debt too? And part of us goes, well, yeah, I know the right answer is yes, but part of you goes, well, that doesn't quite seem right because then we start doing that, well, at least I'm not Hitler, right? And because what we're doing is we're comparing ourselves horizontally instead of comparing ourselves vertically. The reason we have an unpayable debt is because any sin against an infinitely holy God is infinitely heinous. To him, and we don't understand perfection. We don't understand that kind of holiness. All I know is places in the Bible where somebody got just a glimpse of God's holiness, they were undone. The times when I feel the most humble and the most worthless before God is when He just gives me a taste of His majesty and His glory and His holiness when I see the beauty of Christ, I feel ugly. When I'm not looking at Christ, I I think I look pretty good. But there's another reason why our sin is an unpayable debt. That's certainly the number one theological reason. But there's another reason here. And God has helped us to understand our relationship with Him through our own human relationships. That is to say, be careful that you don't take your human relationships and project them onto God. But knowing that God is a personal being and we're made in His image as persons and that personal beings are meant to relate to one another in relationship. God tells us He's a king and we're His subjects. And we don't have kings in this country yet. But if anyone lived under a monarchy, they'd realize that there's kings and there's good kings and bad kings. We have a great king, a perfect king, a good king, a benevolent king, a king who takes care of us and gives us everything we need, protects us. The king put man and woman in a garden in a perfect kingdom, perfect relationship, everything they could possibly want. But the most important thing was a relationship with God. And he only asked one thing in return. The don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was really this requirement. All I ask is that you love me. I think we owe God at least that much. Just love me. Trust me. Love me. Trust me. If I tell you that tree is bad to eat from, don't eat from it. Trust me. 
There's no reason to not trust God, no, no reason to doubt His love for us, and yet man commits cosmic treason. And then God moves from this relationship to a more intimate one, and He says, I'm your father. I'm your father, you're my child. Brought you into this world, take care of you, love you, nurture you, took care of you when you couldn't take care of yourself. I impart wisdom to you. I discipline you gently. I show you kindness, generosity. Remember the first time one of your kids said, I hate you? I try not to remember, but they said it out of uncontrolled rage. Yeah, they don't mean it. But it hurt, right? And then your children get older, and maybe some of you have a child who you're estranged from. I can, can't imagine the pain. I know a little bit of the pain because I get estranged from my children in small ways, but we always manage to patch it back up. We've got a good relationship. But that estranged child, remember the story of the prodigal. This great benevolent father, rich, sons, when I die... I'm giving everything to you. I love you guys. And the younger son says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. Well, you can't have it till I die. Well, I wish you were dead. Didn't say it, but by saying, I want my inheritance now, in essence, he's saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I'd be happier. Money would make me happier than a relationship with you. Oh, that's got to hurt. Right? And it hurts from an honor-shame perspective. That hurts enough, but the hurt that goes deeper is the rejection. The rejection. And so God says, I'm your heavenly Father, and you've rejected me. And if that's not enough, God takes it to the next level of intimacy, and He says, I'm the groom, and you're my bride. And I've pledged my love to you, and you gave your love to another. Any of you who've suffered through an adultery, I, the pain's unspeakable. And yet God says this is exactly the way He feels about us when we betray Him. Right? In the book of Hosea. Tells the prophet, I want you to marry this adulterous woman and she's going to cheat on you and cheat on you and cheat on you and I want you to remain faithful to her and love her so that Israel will know that's how I feel. Can I say that about God? That's how I feel? God has feelings? He's a personal being. Certainly his emotions and feelings are, are a little different than ours, but they have to be similar enough for us to be able to relate to him. No, God doesn't get all... Oh, that's it. You are going to pay. I will get even. But remember, Paul says in, in Romans that God started bringing Gentiles into the church for the purpose of bringing Israel to jealousy in a godly, righteous way. And so part of the reason, too, that there's this unpayable debt is that when you sin against someone and they forgive you. There's a forgiveness that happens from the mouth, but then there's a forgiveness that happens from the heart. And no matter what you do, you cannot pay back somebody 
to get rid of that hurt in their heart. That is something they have to choose to do. That's why you owe someone an unpayable debt when you sin against them. You sin against your spouse and then you say, I'm so sorry, what can I do to make it up to? I'll buy you roses, buy you flowers, buy you... You can't buy that pain away from them. It's something they have to choose to do. In a sense, when we sin against anyone, it's an unpayable debt. You steal money from someone. Sometimes my kids sneak sweets. They can pay it back. They can give me the money for the, the, the cookies they stole. But the pain of, oh, you stole from me. I have to choose to pay that debt myself. Right? I have to pay that. I have to take care of that debt myself. I have to say, I cancel my pain that you caused me. So if we understand that on a human level, you, sinful human being, me, sinful human being, if we understand the pain that our sin causes one another, how much infinitely more does a sinless, holy God feel the hurt of cosmic treason, cosmic rebellion, cosmic adultery? This is the unpayable debt. You can't connive, cajole, manipulate God into not feeling hurt. But because He's a God of love, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God chose to forgive when He had every right in the world to condemn and to punish. And because He's a just God, He had to punish someone. And he said, I'll take the punishment on myself if you will just humble yourself and accept the gift. You know, a lot of people have saving faith in Christ and they're justified and they understand that. And then I talk to them in counseling and they're living this life where they're somehow trying through their good works to make God not be upset with them anymore. He's, you, can't, you can't make that happen. He's chosen already to not be upset with you anymore. In fact, your efforts to try to get Him to not be upset with you, they're prideful. It's like you got a free gift and you said, well, put me on a payment plan. No, it's a free gift. The cross is the antidote to this pride. If pride's the problem, the cross is the antidote. We come to the cross and realize we owe an unpayable debt that only an infinite God could pay, and He did. God poured out all His wrath on His Son so that He could pour out all of His love on us. And that ought to make us humble in our horizontal relationships. You know, when people sin against us, because of our pride, we say, how dare you? I deserve better. In fact, it's that same pride that actually causes us to sin against others. Think of a list of sins. You come up with the sin, I'll show you where pride is the cause. Stealing, I deserve better than I have. So I steal. Coveting, I, I deserve better. 
I want that. It's not fair that you have that and not me. Adultery. I deserve a better spouse. I deserve a better spouse. Lying. I'm a better person. If I tell you the truth, I'm not going to look so good. Lying's a really sad one to me. I mean, they're all sad, but lying... Why didn't you tell the truth? I didn't want him to, to think poorly of me. Well, you are that guy. I know, but... Step 10, then, practice radical love. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Wow. Forgave him the entire debt. Go free with your family. Well, can I at least give you, you know, a couple bucks? No. It'd be an insult to forgive you an unpayable debt and then have you give me a Starbucks card. I have a, a cousin named Kevin. He's an amazing guy. A Marine. Tough. Tough guy. Intelligent. Very intelligent. Graduated with honors from UC Berkeley. Wanted to be a career Marine, but he had a little tumor in his face that they removed, but the Marines said, we'll dishonor... Uh, honorably, sorry, Kevin honorably give you a medical discharge. So, well, now what do I do? I wanted to be a Marine for life. He applied to UC Berkeley's prestigious Hastings Law School and was accepted and graduated second in his class. Wanted to be a public defender and defend those who have no one to defend them. I couldn't, couldn't get a job as a public defender. Finally got a job as an assistant district attorney in Stockton, my hometown. He's so, he's so cool, they let him carry his own sidearm when they'd go to drug busts. <laughs> marathon runner, like world-class marathon runner, triathlete. One night, after visiting some friends, on the north end of Stockton near Lodi, was traveling back home on the back roads. Don't travel the back roads in the middle of the night. Drunk, migrant, undocumented worker crashed into his truck. His wife's legs were crushed. She's had like 12 surgeries to repair her legs. She was a marathon runner too. She's an elementary school teacher in Stockton. Baby's car seat ejected from the car, but miraculously not a hair on that baby's head was harmed. Praise God. Sawyer, he's, he's a sophomore at University of Oregon right now. Great kid. But Kevin, entire body just mangled in traumatic brain injury. And the doctor said he's going to die. There's nothing we can do. And we prayed and prayed and prayed. And then they said, you know, it looks like he might live, but he's going to be in a vegetative state. We prayed and prayed and prayed. And they said, you know what? We're seeing signs that his brain might function on some level, but he's never going to be a lawyer again. 
and he's never going to walk again. Prayed and prayed and prayed, and eventually he got his speech back, though it's very hard to understand him sometimes. Eventually, with grueling physical therapy, he could walk again. In fact, eventually he ran a marathon. It took him all day, and he slept for three days after. But he just has that kind of grit. But he missed out on the first three years of his son's life. Never really got to see his baby boy. And lives in chronic pain. He still is an assistant district attorney, but his responsibilities are greatly diminished to what he could have been doing. And instead of harboring bitterness in his heart, the first opportunity he got, he found that man who was incarcerated for what he had done, and he forgave him. Now, I don't know if the man asked for forgiveness, but forgiveness starts with you. Transactional forgiveness, even better, when somebody asks, will you forgive me? And I say, yes, I forgive you. That is the ultimate goal. But sometimes somebody won't ask for forgiveness, and you need to forgive. You need to forgive. I, I, I remember when he did that, I just didn't know how anyone could do that. Forgiveness is foreign to the natural man. Only the regenerate heart can forgive like that. The natural man wants to hang on to anger, bitterness, and demand repayment. The natural man doesn't want to ask for forgiveness. The natural man doesn't dwell on his own sins and how they affect other people. The natural man sits around all day saying, well, my life stinks and it's everybody else's fault. It's your fault. It's my spouse's fault. It's my kid's fault. It's my, my boss's fault. So you have to humble yourself first in order to practice this kind of radical love. You know what it looks like to others when we choose not to forgive? Well, the story goes on. That slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. What's a hundred denarii? A denarius would be one day's wages. So a hundred days' wages. That's a pretty big debt, right? That sin is substantial. When people sin against us, it hurts. It certainly does. We are not downplaying at all the hurt people cause us when we sin, but remember, you cause other people hurt too because you sin. And so after being forgiven this unpayable debt from his master, he goes to a fellow slave, chokes him and says, pay back what you owe. And the slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. Same thing he said to his master. And now those words being echoed back. And instead of forgiving that debt, he's unwilling and throws him in prison until he should pay back what was owed debtor's prison. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had had happened. I can tell you, the only thing uglier to me than people's sin and my own sin is unforgiveness. People choose not to forgive. Especially Christians. 
How can you be a Christian and not forgive? It's really what it means to be a Christian. A Christ follower. The greatest thing Christ did was forgive. You can't follow Christ and not forgive. Now, what does it look like to God when we choose not to forgive our brother? Brace yourself for this. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. You want to keep records of people's wrongs until they pay you back in full, then God says, I will cut the same deal with you. It's a serious business. In 1 John 4.20 it reads, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If you cannot forgive your brother or your sister or your spouse or your child or your parent or your co-worker, then don't say you love them. What gets in the way then of us being able to forgive? It's pride. Back to pride. The whole sermon's about pride. The whole sermon series is about pride. All of Matthew 18 is about pride. Pride is the stumbling block. Pride leads to self-love, which leads no room for loving others. Pride taints our perception of reality and convinces us that we do not need to be forgiven. And it convinces us that everyone else is at fault and that we are owed the apology. Pride tells us that everyone else needs to change. Pride doesn't ask to be forgiven, nor does it seek to forgive others. Therefore, we end up right back where we started. What do we do? Practice radical humility. Practice radical personal holiness. Practice radical love. Let's end with, with that prodigal son. He came to his senses in the pigsty and realized how good his father was and made up this plan that I'll go home and pay off my debt. I could live as a slave. And he came home and God raced to meet him on the road. God, his father, hugged him, kissed him, gave him a robe, gave him sandals, gave him a signet ring, restored him, threw a party, He was outside the assembly, and and, in all intent and purposes, he was Matthew 18. He wouldn't humble himself, and his father said, Fine, I love you, but you're going to have to go sin outside the assembly, outside the house, outside the home. And he humbled himself and came back to the assembly and they forgave him fully and didn't make him repay that debt. And I love you, what was once lost is now found. But there's that other character, the older brother, the one who doesn't want to forgive. The prideful one who thinks he needs no forgiveness. I stayed. 
I've obeyed everything you've commanded me to do, Father. I've done everything right. You've never once thrown a party for me and my friends. He's in sin, this older brother. He deserves to be Matthew 18. He's now the one with the stubborn heart. But get this. Because he won't come inside the assembly, what has he done? He Matthew 18 himself. See the irony? Folks, there are people in here today who've Matthew 18 themselves. I know it. I know you won't forgive your spouse. You won't forgive your parent. You won't forgive somebody who wronged you. And you're sitting there, well, I'm not going back in until they apologize. They're not suffering. You are. You're outside the party. There are people we love dearly who have left this church Go pursue them and tell them, God is throwing a party. Come on in and stop sitting out there in the cold. Don't do that to yourself. We're ready for you to come back. You know who you are. You know who they are. Don't wait for the pastor or the elders to go chase after them. They're your friends too. You're probably better equipped in many cases to go. Like the father, go outside. Hey, what you doing sitting out here for? There's a party going on inside for repentant sinners. You want to come join us? There's probably younger brothers and older brothers in the room today. And I want us to leave quietly today. And maybe if you're that younger brother who's never humbled your heart and put saving faith in Jesus... You know about Jesus. You've heard about Him. You may even profess His name, but honestly, you've never humbled yourself. You sing about Him forgiving you on the cross, but you don't really think you need forgiveness. I would love for you to come and talk to me this morning. Sometimes making that walk is the best way to humble yourself. We don't do a lot of altar calls here at the church. If you're that person who says, boy, if I walk down the aisle, people are going to be impressed with me, don't walk down the aisle. That's going to do the opposite of what we're trying to do. But there's older brothers here too today. They're harboring unforgiveness towards a parent, a spouse, a child, a friend, a co-worker. And you've Matthew 18 to yourself. Oh, you come here every Sunday and you're part of the assembly, but I tell you, you are outside the assembly in your heart you repent of that pride and come forward and say, I'm ready to come back to the party. And we won't know why you're coming forward. You just come on down and I'll talk to you and pray with you. Or maybe you just want to come up here and focus on the cross and take care of business with God. But let's leave quietly this morning and give people an opportunity to do that.